Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of their women. That is good. That is good. Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're leaving the decadence of the civilized world and searching the wilds for the conclusion of our sword and sorcery discussion. Before we get into all that savage stuff, however, what is going on? I hear you've been appearing in a magazine again, Scott. Yes, yeah, I was invited to write another article for Trebuchet magazine, and so, well, I did. Oh, good. I thought I thought you were going to be centrefold again. <laughs> <laughs> it is an arts magazine, and they do have well, some they, they shocking say images in there, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> roll San, roll San. I was told it would all be in the best possible taste. But no, I have written an article for issue 10, uh, which is all about the role of canon in fandom and how that both enables and perhaps sometimes constrains creativity. Did you use your line about that something you fire at pedants? I didn't. I did think about it, but no, I couldn't quite shoehorn that in there. But yes, that is out now, I believe. So I'll put a link in the show notes and yeah, happy reading. And very soon, following the release of this podcast on the 17th of August 2021, a WWGF begins. (laughs) What is that, you may ask? (laughs) A long acronym. That would be a Weekend with Good Friends, the online gaming convention put together by our wonderful listeners. And that takes place on our Discord server between the 20th and the 22nd of August. At the moment, there are, I think, 107 games that have been offered. And there'll be plenty more pickup games running throughout the convention, because by the time you hear this, it'll be too late to sign up for the standard games. But people will be offering pickup games, like I say, for 24 hours a day throughout those days. So come along, join the Discord, take a look and yeah, play games. So besides the 100 games that you're running, Scott, what are the other seven <laughs> that are on offer? <laughs> Well, there's quite a variety. I mean, as you might expect, there is an awful lot of Call of Cthulhu on offer, but there are plenty of other games, not just horror ones, from a wide variety of people. So, yeah, you should be able to find something that suits your taste. And you can find directions to that in the show notes on blasphemoustomes.com. And now on to our main topic, Sword and Sorcery. Part two. Well, last episode, we spent a long time talking about sword and sorcery in fiction, which is obviously where it has its roots. But that probably isn't where most people know it from. During the 80s in particular, there was a boom in sword and sorcery cinema. Well, I say cinema, I think a lot of it was driven by the direct-to-video explosion of the 80s. A lot of it was stuff that was made cheaply because, well, it could be made cheaply and dumped on VHS. And it 
I think still defines a lot of how sword and sorcery is looked at in gaming. So it might be interesting to discuss some of these films and talk about how shit they are. <laughs> That's a glowing recommendation from the start. Yay. <laughs> yeah, it's surprising how many films there are in that early 80s period, kind of very oh, yeah. late 70s, early 80s. Well, I mean, when I look back as a kid and the sort of films that influenced me, I guess, that were my what you'd call touchstones for D&D, kind of things like... Um, the Sinbad movies, you know, Ray Harryhausen mm. you know, with the skeletons and all that. That was that was great stuff. But the other one that um, when you look up a list of sword and sorcery films, they appear. But so does Jack the Giant Killer from 1962. Yeah. And I remember watching that on, you know, a rainy day or a, maybe I was ill one day. But as a very young kid, and this was my, I got a very strong image of that, of them entering literally like a dungeon with uh, and fighting monsters and and it being absolutely fantastic so recently i think i just went on youtube and uh, had a look boy is it terrible <laughs> it's really bad it's ages before you actually get to what you might call the the castle kind of dungeon thing the bit that was fixed in my mind is where he's going through this corridor he's got his sword and he's going through this corridor and uh, he's, he's fighting something. Well, there's something. Basically, at sort of head height through the wall, there are these hands in gauntlets holding flaming torches. Oh, God. They're like the lights. But when you see it, you're like, well, they just are people's hands stuck through the wall holding <laughs> torches. Uh, and sure enough, when he comes back, they come to life. And he has his sword. But he's literally like reaching up into the air to, to fight them. If he just like bent down a bit, they wouldn't be able to reach him anyway. He could just run along under them. It'd be fine. <laughs> Don't even get me started on the leprechaun in the bottle. <laughs> but that thing with the hands coming through the ball, that's not even an original image. That, uh, I think, must have been lifted from Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, which would have come out, uh, what, 10, 15 years before that. Right. I'll just keep thinking of Day of the Dead, personally. That great nightmarish opening scene. That came out after... But I think, yeah, if we want to get to what we would recognisably, you know, call the sword and sorcery films. Heck, there's even one called The Sword and the Sorcerer. Uh, yeah. let, let's fast forward to about 19, well, maybe the, maybe the late 70s. What will we kick off with? Well, it's kind of tempting to say that the thing that kicked it all off was Conan the Barbarian, because obviously that was the big one, and it was responsible for a lot of the boom at that time. But it wasn't really the original sword and sorcery film from that period. The one that arguably kicked it all off is one I haven't seen for... I guess it must be about 40 years. I remember really nothing about, so apologies for not being able to really bring anything to this, but that would be Hawk the Slayer, which came out in 1980, which I think probably set the template for the kind of film that followed, where it doesn't really seem to owe much to the sword and sorcery fiction and it's got this sort of general trappings but it is very much a sort of revenge tale it's pretty much with every sword and sorcery film we're going to talk about in this episode it's the same fucking story it really is it's a big bad guy comes along devastates community you know he's either an evil king with a sorcerer working for him or he's an evil sorcerer and that you then end up with a barbarian hero who's been affected by this who gathers a band of misfits together goes off and uh, years later does 
does justice. This isn't something that really comes from the fiction, but every film is like this, everyone. But let's talk a little bit about Hawk the Slayer. I thought, oh, this is just going to be another one not that great. But actually, I watched it last night. I really quite enjoyed it. Oh, right. Oh, good. Yeah, he gets the the mind sword, which is like this gem <laughs> that kind of glows and it's, it's in the clasp at the end of the sword. All he has to do is think and it flicks to his hand. And then you've got Brian Breslau from the Carry On movies because he, he basically goes around and, and uh, collects up the Magnificent Seven. Yeah. And with each one, you uh, he's like, oh, I need to uh, get the uh, the dwarf and the elf and the giant. So I need to get the Fellowship of the Ring. No, not the Fellowship of the Ring. I need to get a bunch <laughs> of people together. And each time I go to get one, it's going to be a cutscene in a forest near Nottingham, out in the forest for no reason, where there's like a guy working a blacksmith's forge in the middle of the forest. There's some guys doing a slave auction in the middle of the forest. Everything is just in the middle of the forest. Nothing in a town because, you know, we've only got apparently a budget of like £61,000. I thought you were going to say 61 quid for a minute. Yeah, I think so. And uh, yeah, he, he gathers together his team and they've got like, I mean, the elven bow, the elven archer, he can fire arrows like a machine gun. It's just tuk, 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 at that speed. And every time Hawk appears, you get this little... Doo, 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 doo. <whistles> sort of like little sound effect. It's great. And the music, I think the music in a lot of these films, because it's around that time when it's kind of early electronic music mm. and some of it's kind of funky 70s music. Some of it's kind of going into the sort of 80s kind of sound and there's, you know, there's disco and everything going on. So it's, it's a real mashup of music, some of which is great and some of which is quite incongruous. But apparently in 2015, that, well, no, not apparently. In 2015, there was a Kickstarter to do a sequel of Hawk the Slayer. Oh, wow. And Rick Wakeman was going to be doing the music. I mean, great. Wow. They had a goal of £360,000 and they raised £19,000. <sighs> and Ouch. nobody spoke about it ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, quite, it's quite a fun film of quite a few of these. I think it's more fun than Sword and the Sorcerer, I have to say. Yeah. Now, that's another one. That's setting the bar pretty low, Paul. Well, I would say so, but I listened to uh, Dirk the Dice on, on the Grognard Files, and this was obviously like the formative film for him. He, oh, wow. he talks about how he would go down the, like, the video rental place and get this out virtually like, every week for a whole year or something and just watch this again and again wow. but yeah i watched that again recently and uh, i don't know i mean i remember yeah. watching literally from the video store in town going around to a friend's house we'd get together and play D D, and he'd got that and you know we watched it and the yeah. only thing that sticks in anybody's memory i think is that sword with the three blades yeah that shoots the blades spring-loaded blades have you seen this matt i have no idea i've not seen this film at all the way you're describing it makes me think so this is going to be two hours or whatever of my life i won't get back oh it will be <laughs> yeah you're right <laughs> imagine a sword right but instead of having one blade it's got three blades one long blade and two shorter blades side by side but yeah when he wants to i don't know if there's a button on the handle he presses <laughs> or what but he can fire those blades and they fire out and luckily they move slow enough that you can see them move on the film but they do kind of move rather than going like a, an arrow they kind of go like they're hung on two bits of wire at a bit of an angle across the screen, <laughs> kind of like that. Funny <laughs> that. 
<laughs> and they make this weird sound. Yeah, it's it's yeah. kind of a cool image. The Sword and Sorcerer has other things that make it stand out that are a bit weird. One of the strange things is just the names of the characters. They take all these names from yeah. British history. So what is it? King Richard is supposedly the good king. And then you've got Cromwell who's trying to usurp him. And Exactly. Yeah, you've got Cromwell. Yeah. But also the sorcerer in it, at least, is pretty fucking creepy. Yeah. It really is. I think it's obviously very low budget and they've done the best they can with the special effects. But I think the special effects are on a par with low budget horror film effects of the time and really quite uncomfortable. I mean, he is a repellent, ugly character Everything around him seems to be corrupt and dirty, and just seeing him on screen makes you want to take a bath. Mm. And apparently this film's got a budget of four million. Really? Wow, they hit that well. So I read. I went to look for this on Amazon Prime Video just because I wanted to watch it because it had been so long. And the only version of it they had on there was the Rift Tracks version. So obviously, you know, I had the voiceover taking the piss out of it all the way through which i think actually made it more watchable i imagine it's so. even then this time round, i could only actually make it halfway through i gave up yeah is there on youtube not a great version a lot of these films are there on youtube ah, okay the other film i'd say before we get into all the conan stuff which came in 1982 the other film i'd say which predated that which perhaps fed into some of this explosion was heavy metal which may not be an obvious choice this was an animated film inspired by the magazine that was around at the time heavy metal which reprinted primarily a lot of european comics french comics and translated them into english but there were english language originals in there as well and it was sort of this weird heady mix of science fiction and fantasy and horror they did this anthology animated film called Heavy Metal that is basically a lot of short pieces inspired by the comics they published with a sort of framing sequence, a very loose framing sequence that runs through. A couple of the pieces in there, like uh, the adaptation of Richard Corbin's Den, and there's another one in there, Tana, are both very sword and sorcery inspired. The Tana one has got science fiction elements in there as well, but yeah, I think at the time, certainly before some of the later stuff came out, that was probably the best sword and sorcerer I'd seen on screen at that time. I love that film. I've seen it so many times. Yeah, and I mean, talking of animated films, you've also got Fire and Ice. Oh, fuck's sake. The film by Ralph Bakshi, who oh. uh, better known for the, the 1978 animated Lord of the Rings film. And Fritz the Cat and all sorts of other things. But Oh, for sure. Yeah, I heard an interesting interview with him recently on the Tolkien Experience podcast. It was just interesting to hear his take on, A, how he got to make the Lord of the Rings film, and B, the kind of upshot of it and how that went and everything. Mm. And again, I'd sort of say Lord of the Rings doesn't really fit the sword and sorcery mould. It's more the sort of high fantasy mould. But, mm. you know, that film... Again, you know, is there is sorcery, there is swords in it, so it kind of fits into this sort of early eighties movement. Yeah, they're kissing cousins. So you took against Fire and Ice, Scott? Oh God, yeah, I watched it yesterday. I don't think I'd seen it before. I'd seen a number of Bakshi's other films, and I, I always find him very hit and miss, and usually more miss than hit. But I 
can't remember the last time I disliked a film quite as much as Fire and Ice. I think it fails as an animated film because the animation is shit. There's some very nice designs in it. I mean, he collaborated with Frank Frazetta. And when we were talking about covers to sword and sorcery books and fantasy books in the last episode, we didn't mention Frazetta, but he was probably one of the defining figures in terms of how people visualize this stuff, along with Boris Vallejo. His covers became pretty legendary. And so there's a lot of that stuff that's brought to this film. And there were other interesting artists who were brought in. The writers of it were Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway, both of whom had worked on the Savage Sword of Conan comic uh, for Marvel for a long time. So they were experienced sword and sorcery writers. And I just don't know what happened with this. I mean, for a start, it's boring. I mean, it's only about an hour and 20 minutes, but it feels like it's four hours. There's just nothing that happens in it. There is just lots of running around, nothing really happening. It uses sort of some of the worst cheesecake and women in distress tropes of the time and comes across as being quite painfully sexist in places and uncomfortably rapey, but that's not really unusual for the time. What I wasn't prepared for was just how racially uncomfortable it was, in that you've got this sort of blonde hero who's running around, and you've got all these dark-skinned villains who are described as subhumans, mm. who are basically these these mindless primitives, completely disposable. And dear God, just you could watch that film as Nazi propaganda, really. I mean, it, it feels like that. I mean, it's strange... I don't know if it's a reflection of the time or what, but have you seen the film Wizards, which also yes. comes up in the list? I saw that again 40 years ago, and I remember really liking it at the time. I've not seen it since, so I don't know if I still like it, but I remember liking it as a teenager. So I watched that recently. This is another Bakshi animated film that appears on your lists of sword and sorcery films. Fire and Ice, I agree, Scott, it's, it's okay. It's a bit dull. I mean, but Wizards is not, is not dull. No. Um, it's batshit crazy. It's set two million years in the future. So this is good swords and sorcery stuff. We get a bit of backstory. There's been a bunch of terrorists, you know, triggered a bunch of nuclear bombs. The world blew up and it took a couple of million years to recover. And now you've got these struggling civilizations. And there's these two brother wizards who end up fighting. And that's the wizards of the title. And it's in this kind of weird kind of Roger Dean meets Dr. Zeus meets Robert Crumb with like 70s funk and acid trips abound. And it's just crazy. And then the evil wizard, he digs up all this uh, archaic shit and finds some of Hitler's speeches, like the Nuremberg mm. rallies and stuff, to show his troops. So you're actually sort of getting that on screen. And his, the animated characters are really... They're not intended to be realistic. They're very yeah. strongly stylized kind of characters. But you said about the racism, Scott, and I think from what I've heard and what I've read, Bakshi was very actively anti-racism and yeah. anti-Nazi and so on. And he made a film in uh, 75 that I'm not even going to say the name of, but it featured like Scatman Crothers and Barry White and so on. And it was kind of a exploitation film. And it was accused... Some people thought that it was racist, but I think it was kind of a, an anti-racist film. It's kind of a mashup of, of stuff. It's kind of hard to, to pull it all apart. But I, I think I get the impression Bakshi's heart is in the right place. Yeah, I 
got the impression that this film wasn't deliberately racist. It was just really kind of thoughtless in that Kind of lazy. Not even lazy. It's just that I don't think they thought through the considerations of some of the imagery they were putting on the screen. Yeah, that's what I mean by lazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. On a more positive note, I think the other film that came out just before, around the same time as Cone of the Barbarian, so I don't think it was one that was directly influenced, was The Beastmaster. So this was one that was made by Don Cossarelli, who is better known for the Phantasm films. This is a weird film. Coscarelli being weird. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I mean, it follows the same basic storyline as I mentioned at the start. It's the same evil wizard fucks shit up, barbarian goes on revenge spree against him. There's a bit more to it, but not much. So the basic plot is is pretty simple. The shtick is the barbarian in it has got the psychic ability to communicate with animals, and he has these animal companions and kind of wanders around with this, supposed to be this black panther, but it's actually a tiger dyed black. What the fuck? Yeah, it, it looks really weird. I mean, this must be a really dangerous film to make, because that tiger's in just about every scene, and you see him interacting with all sorts of other characters were Siegfried and Roy like the main characters <laughs> it felt like it apparently they had to be quite careful not to have the children in the film on the set at the same time as the tiger because they worried the tiger would eat them <laughs> but everyone else it was just sort of yeah okay you're acting alongside a tiger get on with it keep the cameras rolling we'll pay the compensation well that sort of happened because there's another oh scene in it that involves a bear where apparently one of the actors did get mauled by it oh my god but there's also a lot of fire stunts and horse stunts and stuff like that where, yeah, I mean, the film's fairly roughly edited and it's, it doesn't have very sophisticated special effects. So a lot of it was just plain done as far as I can see. And yeah, just watching a lot of, say, there's, there's a big climactic fight scene where just everything's on fire and you've got horses running around and people on fire, people just rolling around in the flames doing stuff. And I was sitting there thinking the injuries and the liabilities in this film must be amazing. Mm. Yeah. But what makes this film, I think, is there are lots of just weird, uncomfortable, strange little bits in it, because it is Don Cossarelli. So, for example, the barbarian character in it is known as the Unborn, because he's supposedly the son of what's now the king of this kingdom, but he was stolen by this sorcerer priest from his mother's womb and transferred into the womb of an ox and born from that. At some point as well, he encounters this sort of coven of these really weird bird-like creatures. Well, sort of more bat-like than bird-like. They've got these long membranous wings and they look really weird and uncomfortable. And they consume people by wrapping their arms and wings around them and just sort of digesting them alive and just leaving all these bones lying around. Huh. There's just all these creepy little bits like that that make it... Yeah, I think fairly interesting. I mean, it's it's not a particularly original film, but it is a fun one. And it apparently spawned two sequels and a television series, none of which I've seen. Huh. And also, apparently, it is inspired by a novel by Andre Morton called The Beastmaster uh, from 1959. But it sounds like they rewrote it completely because, I mean, Norton's original novel was a science fiction novel for a start. So I don't know how they compare. Hmm. Well, should we get on to the, the big one? The Barbarian in the Room. Hey, finally one I've seen. <laughs> 1982. And Arnie 
hits the big screen. He's been in one or two little things before, Pumping Iron and, and so on, but, you know, this is his big uh, breakthrough movie. Was this before or after The Terminator? I forget. Before. Right. So we've got a budget of $20 million. Oh, wow. And some really big names as well. I mean, directed by John Milius, written by Oliver Stone. There was some real talent behind this. And James Earl Jones, the voice of Darth Vader. Playing Salsa Doom. Who, uh, yeah, brings a lot to the screen, I think, in, in terms of screen presence. And filmed in Spain with some terrific scenery. I think that's something that, mm. watching bits of it this morning, just to refresh my memory, I'm kind of struck by, yeah, this is great landscape for this. Mm. It really sort of captures a feel. Whereas some of the other films, you know, the woods around Nottingham, all very nice if you're doing Robin Hood, but not so much for Sword and Sorcery, really. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me about this film is uh, we start off with the words of the chronicler just sort of saying, let me tell you about, you know, what is it? Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And onto this Conan destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of his saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Yeah. Paraphrased from Robert E. Howard's first Conan story, The Phoenix and the Sword. And then we get the scene of Conan talking to his father, and his father sort of, telling him about Crom and the Riddle of Steel. Mm. And then we cut to uh, the scene where his, his mother is killed and, and Thulsa Doom comes to his village and, and everything. And nobody speaks in that. Mm. There's no dialogue. Thulsa Doom you know, takes off his helmet and he stares at the mother and the mother stares at him. And then there's like, he spins around and then chops her head off. Nobody speaks. And then we get the bit where... The boy is, is taken away, and the, the narrator kind of cuts back in for a moment, just sort of says, you know, and in his gravelly voice, that yeah, but they're sort of taken off, the children are sort of taken away. And then we see them like pushing that big wheel around, and we get that sort of great montage scene as it gets fewer and fewer people, and the trench under his feet gets deeper and deeper, and he kind of gets mm. older and older, and then he lifts his head, and it's um, Arnie. Still no dialogue, and I timed it, and we don't actually get dialogue beside like the odd grunt and the odd line from the narrator until 22 minutes in so it's over quarter an hour mm. when we get the you know the what is best in life scene and that's really striking i think that lack of dialogue but all the visuals just let he tell you what's going on you don't need dialogue yeah well i think in terms of just filmmaking conan the barbarian is probably the best sword and sorcery we've had on screen it's a beautifully made film. It's a well-constructed film. It's a well-written film. But I like it as a sword and sorcery film. I don't think it's a very good Conan film or a very good Conan adaptation. But I think it's a, a good film in its own rights. I feel about it much the same way as I say feel about uh, that Keanu Reeves Constantine film that came out a number of years back. I like it as a film, but as, as a reflection of the source material, it fails completely. Because that's the first good thing I've ever heard you say about it, Scott. <laughs> Usually it's a massive trigger to, like, get you ranting. There are two things I really dislike about it. 
well, more than two things, but two things in particular that I, I really dislike. One is, I think Arnie is a terrible actor. I, I thought he was okay in The Terminator, I, the first Terminator film. I like him in that. But everything else I've seen him in uh, felt like the film has been reduced by his presence there. And Conan the Barbarian is no no different. He's a campy cult figure, or at least was at the time, that he has this sort of charm to him that is a bit naff. And I think that is completely wrong for the character, because Conan in this film comes across largely, I mean, not always, but largely as a bit oafish and a bit gormless and he has his moments, but on the whole, this is not the quick-witted, cunning, clever, lithe, dangerous Conan of the stories. This is a slab of beef in a helmet. And, I mean, the other thing that I don't like about it is that it just follows the same lazy tropes or same lazy basic storyline, as I said, for all the other films, which isn't there in the source material. I mean, you know, this whole thing about Conan having been raised in slavehood and going off and getting revenge and so on. None of that's in the stories. I mean, Conan, uh, from an early age in the stories, is going out and, you know, first of all, being a thief and then a mercenary and, you know, a pirate and a brigand and so on. What they do in the film has got no relation there. And I think takes a lot of the complexity out of the character. It makes it something that's easily digestible for a film like this, yes. But it's not Conan. What do you make of it, Matt? I liked it. You can say more if you wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's a kind of good popcorn film. It's going to turn your brain off. Very quotable. Mm. Not so fond of him beating up a camel, even though the camel gets its own back in the next film. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's, there's not much to say about it really. It's yeah, it's just a good turn your brain off action flick. There's not much else really I can say about it. Yeah, no, for me it's like a Frazetta cover come to life. I mean, I think it is the definitive sword and sorcery film, and I think it you know mm. brings Conan to life for me. Oh god, no, just uh, fantastic. I think the story isn't a simple story. Like, I mean, I guess you can reduce it to a simple story. But the whole him meeting the companions, him almost sort of dying on the tree of woe, which, you know, that comes directly out of one of the stories mm. and is portrayed just like in the in the story. There are lots of elements that are lifted from the stories. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, if you're going to make a film, I think you've got to take bits of the stories and weave them together with a, a sort of overarching narrative. And I think this, you know, this works fantastically. I agree completely. And I think that aspect of it is good. I just don't feel like they got the character even remotely right i think there's uh, there's a few scenes we could talk about one is when he infiltrates the cult this is a classic call of cthulhu <laughs> scene really of uh, as, as as we might call it knock him out and take the uniform he kind of goes in with a, like a bunch of flowers like a hippie around his neck <laughs> and gets talking to one of the cultists in his white robes and he's like oh can we just talk over there where nobody can see and then he's kind of knocks the guy out and takes his uniform takes his robes and, and joins in i mean that's we've all done that in a call of cthulhu game i think <laughs> and then obviously we've got conan the destroyer as well which I've not seen for a great many years. So I really remember nothing about it, apart from not thinking that it was as good a film in its own rights as, as the first one was. Have either of you seen it more recently than that? I, I've seen it somewhere in the last 10 years. I remember there was uh, one scene with a series of mirrors that he ended up throwing a sword through and killing a guy behind it, and that's about it. 
Yeah, I've not seen it for a long time. Even that one does get better reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb than the 2011 version, though. Yeah, I mean, the 2011 version, I think, had its merits. But, you know, its merits were largely down to, I think, Jason Momoa, I think, made a better Conan than, than Arnie. I found him easier to buy as Conan. He had the potential with the right script to be the character I wanted to see on screen. The problem was that it wasn't the right script. It was, again, like a rehash of the first film, but without a lot of the flourishes and imagination, and it was just dull and forgettable. It was like a love child of the original film and the Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson films. Mm, So it very mm. much, that whole start, so it starts off, there's this kind of uh, magical artifact, this mask which is broken into many pieces and those pieces are hidden throughout the land. It's like, what are these? The rings of power. Uh, (laughs) And then, and then following that it cuts to a a rural village scene with animals and so on. That could have been Hobbiton and the music as well Mm. is very much like Howard Shaw's music in Lord of the Rings films. It's those sort of, uh, I don't know, flutes or pipes or whatever. Uh, And it's very much hitting those same sort of tones and numerous scenes throughout I watched it with Lucy last night and we were like, that's a bit like the bit in Fellowship or or whatever. It really seems to to pick up on a lot of those beats, but not do a very good job of it. And it kind of got a video gamey look. Yeah. And kind of a constant action scenes that aren't that exciting and are yeah. all a bit similar. Yeah. Whereas the the action scenes in the original Conan film, there's a lot of variety of different sets and different approaches. And you've got Arnie doing those kind of set pieces to camera with those twirling the swords and so on, which just look totally fantastic. Some of those swords that Arnie wielded, apparently, according to uh, the Gospel of IMDb or maybe Wikipedia, they cost $10,000 each. And he had two of them. Oh, wow. I mean, I've seen some film props. And when you actually see them up close, you're like, well, that's a bit shit. Because, you know, they're just on, on the screen. I mean, I guess they try a bit harder now. we got high definition. But to spend 10K on, like, real metal swords and so on, I mean, they look damn good. So, you yeah. know, it was money well spent. But also, I think a lot of the complaints you just made about the 2011 Conan also apply to the adaptation of Solomon Kane that came out around the same time, mm. 2009, with James Purefoy as Solomon Kane. Again, a character I think had a lot of potential, and I don't think the characterization was too bad in that, but it just felt, yeah, I mean, like, it felt like a video game cut sequence in the end. It was just completely forgettable. Yeah, both that 2011 Conan and that um, Solomon Kane, no great redeeming features, really. It's just kind of mm. a bit dull. They're not bad. I mean, that's the thing. In the 1980s, we had a lot of genuinely bad sword and sorcery films, like Deathstalker. I mean, Deathstalker is a terrible film. There was The Sorceress as well, which wasn't good. Fire and Ice was terrible. These were bad films, but they were, I think, entertaining in a way that neither the new Conan nor the new Solomon Kane were. These were just kind of slick and empty yeah, I don't think they were necessarily entertaining, but that these these new ones they're, they're they're more they've got the budget, they've got technical finesse. People know how to make films 
better on the whole now in terms of production quality and, and they've got the, the money there and so on and the technology so you don't get the the crappy wooden sets and everything that you used to get you got the technology and, and so on you know at least they look quite good but it takes a lot more than that to make a good movie before we go away from films completely, I'd just mention as well in passing, there was another Robert E. Howard adaptation in 1997, which, I mean, I haven't seen it for a while, but I remember as being actually surprisingly watchable. Not good, but just not terrible. And that was the adaptation of Cole the Conqueror with Kevin Sorbo as Cole, which was based very loosely on Robert E. Howard's The Hour of the Dragon. I mean, it was fairly cheaply made, but yeah, I remember that as being far more fun than it had any right to be. And in the mid-90s, there was talk of them doing another sequel to the Conan films, but then Schwarzenegger got elected as governor of California in like the yeah. early 2000s, and that kind of put pay to that, I think. And there have been a few rumblings in recent years of him perhaps going back and doing Conan the King, yeah. playing the old Conan. But you know, in fact, I think even at some point someone did a teaser trailer for that, but it still never happened. Well, take my money. I'll pay to see it. I'd Actually, I think I'd, I'd be up for that. But the other ill-fated Conan adaptation, which I still lament, was from about 10 years ago. There was supposed to be an animated Conan film starring Ron Perlman as, as Conan in an adaptation of Red Nails. They started making it, but ran out of money, and so just went into limbo. Now let's move on to talk about sword and sorcery in gaming. So, Matt, I mean, I know you're not a big fan of D&D, but you do play some fantasy gaming. I know you've played Mortborg and so on mm -hmm. recently. And I think there's, there's a continuum between fantasy and sword and sorcery. I mean, sword and sorcery, you could say, is just pulp fantasy. So it's a grey area, you know, it's, it's not a, a clearly defined thing. So which bits of sort of fantasy that you've played have you enjoyed and how would that compare with what we talked about do you feel like that's would be sword and sorcery or not sword and sorcery i don't really think of it as sword and sorcery as a thing on its own i more think of fantasy mixed with horror hmm. or fantasy that's particularly dark and grim and nasty and not so much of this high fantasy kind of tolkien aesthetic because that's kind of the the fantasy that turns me off and makes me want to walk away from the table that i find it very very dull i like my fantasy that's dark as it comes it's one of the reasons why i like mork borg so much because that's unapologetically black as hell and i think there is a lot of sword and sorcery in mork borg i've only played it once but it does have a little bit of that feel to it Oh, it does, yeah. There are scrolls that you can cast spells from, and even then, magic is something that can go very badly wrong, and that when it does, it can go wrong with some quite, uh, well, we'll say for the GM humorous effects, but for the poor sap of a character on the receiving end, it can be quite brutal. But again, that's one of the things I like about it. So, I mean, you talk about dark games, sort of with, with sort of dark themes. Would you say they're quite gritty or pulpy? Uh, I'd go for the gritty end of the, the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, because that's one thing that 
always intrigues me about the approach to sword and sorcery in RPGs, and we've talked about this before, I think, which is that a lot of people equate sword and sorcery in gaming with deadliness. For example, there was the Riddle of Steel that came out some years back, which was a very crunchy, very deadly RPG in which any fight could kill your character, and there were all sorts of complications from any wound you took. I've heard this philosophy applied to a lot of other games and it doesn't again reflect the source fiction as some comment i saw on rpg net years back put it what aspect of the conan stories does this reflect is it so you can play all the stories in which conan died <laughs> that's reflecting more the kind of osr kind of old school D mm. where some people play it with a lot of tpks and a lot of character death that can be fun. It can. I don't think that's aiming to reflect any kind of fiction, particularly. That's a style of gaming, which is just a very sort of uh, almost kind of... Absolutely. A thing in itself. It's fun in itself if you enjoy that style to have a very deadly game. But it's the fact that people equate that with sword and sorcery. And I think if you're looking at emulating the sword and sorcery genre in gaming, if you're looking at trying to capture mm. the feel of particularly those pulp stories from the early 20th century, that's something very different than that sort of deadly, let's have a TPK every session approach. Yeah, I would say it's the antithesis of that, really. If you yeah. think of it in Call of Cthulhu terms... I would think Call of Cthulhu, general Call of Cthulhu might be on the same track as like regular fantasy gaming, whereas Sword and Sorcery would be on the same track as Pulp Cthulhu. You know, it's, mm. it's more bigger characters doing more kind of pulp feats and so on. Yeah, sorcery is dangerous and so on. I guess what I'm interested in is I'm playing in a D&D fifth head game at the moment. Why is that not Sword and Sorcery? We got swords. And we got sorcery. Well, I think a couple of reasons. Obviously, the setting plays a big part. But in, in D&D, magic, unless you're playing a really unusual setting, is something that is woven into the fabric of the setting that is almost a utility that people treat it as a fact of life, that you have good wizards, you have healing magic, you have useful magic items and so on. So magic is more often than not a positive thing. It can be used in evil ways, but it's more often than not a positive thing in the player character's experiences. That is not sword and sorcery. The sword and sorcery, the sorcery there is almost invariably something deeply unnatural, even when it's not in the hands of the antagonists, it's something dangerous, unpredictable, and never really leads to good things. So I say that's the big difference. And also the use of intelligent non-human species in it, I think, tends to connect it more with Tolkienian fantasy, with high fantasy, than the very anthropocentric sword and sorcery. Let's dig into that then on the sorcery side. Clearly, I would agree. D&D, &D, it gives you lots of spells as utilities. They're very reliable. They're not going to fuck you up when you cast them, I mean. So which games have we played that we feel gives you sorcery and spells as a player character that can be very, um, I guess, unpredictable, dangerous to use, risky, as we sometimes see in Call of Cthulhu, I mean, sometimes, but, but in fantasy games... Just Mort Borg, but I've already mentioned it. Does Mort Borg do it? There is a risk that if you roll badly, then the spell will... It doesn't kick off. That you have a 
there's a whole list of negative effects that could happen if you screw up. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and Scott, I mean, have you got any examples of that where sorcery goes bad? Yeah, a few. I'd say the most popular one these days, I mean, outside Morkborg, is probably Dungeon Crawl Classics. Magic can go wrong in spectacular ways, and your wizard can end up killing off your party as readily as, as any monster you encounter. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like a table for just about every spell, isn't there? I think, you know, for bad effects from various spells. Yeah, I've had fun with that. That's a, a good one. And I think Sorcerer falls within that as well, that magic in that is deeply unnatural in that it involves binding and controlling demons. Obviously, you define what demons are, and in a Sorcerer and Sword game, I mean, they can be the undead, they can be spirits, they can be magic items, whatever. But the point is that they are always working against you to some extent they may be intelligent they may have their own agendas they may be well just something really dangerous that you don't fully understand and that your use of them is always going to come at a cost and i think that very nicely reflects a lot of sword and sorcery fiction particularly say the elric stories Speaking, though, of, of Elric, I mean, obviously, there's also the Stormbringer and Elric games that Chaosium put out for years, and Magic in that, they changed it a bit as it went on, and in the later editions, it was a bit more utilitarian fantasy, but you also had the Bound Demons aspect. But in the, the early versions, that it really was a bit like Sorcerer in that respect, that you got your power from the demons and entities you summoned or made pacts with and as a result that always had a huge potential for biting you in the arse so that's sorcery what about swords because in my experience like talking about DD again i can remember some years ago i just sort of thought we were facing some enemies and i'm like well i'm gonna th just like hurl my sword because there was this i don't know monster just close to me sort of running at me so i said well i'm going to put my sword behind my shoulder and just throw it <laughs> into the the monster as it's charging towards me because I, I could sort of cinematically sort of see that as uh, being quite exciting but then the dm's like well okay give me a roll and it's like really difficult because that's not what you're skilled in so it misses and then i don't have a sword and then you know i can't really do anything which is kind of obvious but if you want to play Sword and Sorcery, I think you want that sort of pulp element of being able to do dramatic things, mm. but not be like heavily penalised for it. You know, because I think, you know, I'm pretty sure there are scenes in um, in Conan where, well, I'm thinking of the film where, you know, he loses his sword, but he's just as good with his fists or, or whatever. Obviously, it's great having a sword because you can chop people's heads off, but he's not useless without one, you know? Mm. So I think being able to narrate things like that into the game in that sort of pulp mode is essential. I think we want rule sets, combat rule sets, that facilitate those kind of actions. And I'm not sure in 5th Ed, but certainly in previous editions, I wasn't really getting that. Do we see that in some other rule systems, fantasy games? Most of my sword and sorcery gaming in recent years and I say in recent years because I think Sword and Sorcery is probably the genre I've gamed in maybe even more than horror over the years, but certainly it's up there with horror. The one that I've used most in the past 10 years is Jaws of the Six Serpents, which was written by my friend Tim Gray, and I've done some work for. And Jaws of the Six Serpents uses the PDQ system, which is very 
rules-light system where your characters are defined by some fairly broad traits known as qualities. So you could have a trait of something like swordsman or barbarian or something like that. And the idea would be that that trait would cover anything to do with swords from fighting with them to maybe throwing them to knowing how to maintain them perhaps even knowing the right bars to hang around in in a city to talk to mercenaries or other cell swords hmm. each of your traits is like that and the complex conflicts in it which include things like fights but it could be something like an exorcism or something like that as well it's anything that involves a round by round process of attrition with that you're encouraged to be creative in how you bring these in so that means in a fight your swordsman character would be just as effective doing what you just said there paul throwing his sword into his enemy as he would getting into a straight duel with the character yeah yeah that's the reason why i keep going back to jaws of the six serpents because it's a really quick and simple system to explain to people there's very little crunch to it and it's got the versatility to do all that cool stuff they've seen in fiction and films without the gm sitting there going through the dungeon master's guide and then just saying nah rules don't let you do that and of course there is i don't think any of us played it but there is a conan rpg using the mm. um uh, the 2d20 system well, there have been plenty of code and RPGs. There have been at least three over the years. Sure, but I mean, that's like the current one, right? Mm. And I've heard very good reports of the kind of character gen in that system. Another one is Barbarians of Lemuria, which mm. is a pretty popular game. I've signed up for a game of that at Owlbear and Wizard's Staff in a few weeks. So I'm looking forward to playing that, but that's not yet. Yeah, any others? There are a few indie games that came out, which I think really capture interesting aspects of sword and sorcery i mean we touched upon sorcerer and sword but i will just mention in passing the supplement that judd Carlman did dictionary of moo which i think is fantastic this is as a setting supplement but it's got some mechanics in there that basically presents this sort of dead sword and sorcery world that's somewhere between barsoom and the old testament and it's really sort of a creepy weird setting but it brings in all sorts of cool sword and sorcery ideas and so oh uh, yeah i mean that's one of my favorites and i'm still determined to run a campaign of it that doesn't crash and burn but pff, we'll see one of the weirdest most intense ones i played i've only played it once was slay with me which was also written by ron edwards which is a one-on-one -on -one rpg where you've got one person who sort of takes on a gm role and one person who takes on a player role it sort of brings in that, I guess, more tannithly, maybe a little bit see or more side of things where it's got a undercurrent of perhaps eroticism, but certainly a very emotional, very sensual, but dangerous. Uh, the tagline for it was, if I remember correctly, yeah, the monster will kill you, the lover is willing. Yeah, it is, I think, still one of the the most intense RPG experiences I've had. I played that with Gregor Hutton years back, and he ran it magnificently. Also in that very sort of sensual Tanith Lee side of things, there's Vincent Baker's In a Wicked Age, which, again, focuses more on the emotional weird side of the sword and sorcery than it does on the, the blood and guts and cold steel side. Yeah, actually, that, I'd forgotten that one, but that's a really good game. And... Mm. 
relatively simple mechanics yeah. that lead to very dramatic happenings. So I can remember running that for my kids. I guess they were about 12 or something. I think I've got an obsession with throwing swords. I'm not sure I threw the sword because I was running it, but they <laughs> came back into this little village and there was kind of like the, the town mayor, I suppose, or whatever, who was like the baddie. And I was expecting some sort of big standoff and fight here. And um, Ed was like, well, I throw my sword at him. <laughs> His father's son. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, we made the dice roll, whatever the mechanic was. And basically the mechanic sort of said that, well, he achieved that so in in one throw he's like taken out the mayor and the situation was kind of that resolved that situation that battle was over mm. so it was like really fast and dramatic and i was kind of like oh uh oh <laughs> i thought we were going to be like rolling dice for 10 minutes but um it was almost maybe almost too quick what actually caught me unawares the, the speed of which it happened but the fact that you still remember it and you're talking about it 10 years later i think proves that it's also very powerful and effective yeah oh, totally you don't get moments like that in a lot of rpgs no no the other end game which i'll just mention very quickly in passing which i did play with matt but i don't know whether you remember it at all was on mighty thews which was written by simon carrier published back in 2009 i haven't played it since then so my memories are a bit vague but i remember there were being a couple of really cool aspects to it one is we talked in the fiction about the fact that the world building is very vague and you just focus on the bits you need. And with this, yeah, it is like that, that you kind of draw a map collaboratively and put little bits and pieces on it, and that is the world that you create. You do that at the gaming table. That sort of acts to, to get things in motion. And the other thing that I remember about it was the fact that You've got companions or NPCs in it that are associated with your characters who may be, like I say, companion characters, who are effectively a spendable resource that if your character gets killed at any stage, you can basically cross one of them off and they die in your place. And that, I think, reflects some of the, particularly the Robert E. Howard stuff beautifully, that you, you do have all these quite often doomed mm. companions with Conan who, do, who die in his place. I think the other thing I would look for, you talked about world burning there, I think the other thing I'd look for in a sword and sorcery game, if you're going to reflect the Conan stories, you know, each Conan story you start, it's not like, it's not particularly which order do I need to read these mm. in, Whereas, you know, most collections of stories, there's an order in which to read them. You know, there's, there's this one where he's in a boat against the coast. There's this one where he starts off like trapped in a, you know, in manacles in a dungeon or something. You know, there's yep. this one where he's just drenched in gold and he's got loads of gold to spend and then he soon loses it. You know, each story, it's like, so if you were playing it, you could use the same characters. But as GM, it's almost like, okay, we're going to frame this one where you've been shipwrecked and you've got nothing and you're on the coast. The next one, it's like, okay, we're going to frame this one and you've got all the money you can eat. I ran exactly that campaign using Jaws of the Six Serpents at the club some years back. I very deliberately also ran it out of chronological order. So I started out effectively using the Conan model or even Elric, started out with the final story and sort of said, right, you know, this is the climax. This is where all your characters are. And now over the course of the next eight weeks, we're going to play a series of short games in which we work out how some of them got there. And the, the other thing that I did was I 
sort of said, right, okay, you know, choose which two of your characters are effectively the central protagonists of this story, and the rest of you can play a rotating cast of characters. So you may play the same character from 20 years ago in one of the flashbacks, or you may play someone completely different. It's up to you. So we could find out how these characters met 20 years ago, or we could have someone come in and later find out why they're not in that final scene. And that worked really well. Right. But aren't we a Call of Cthulhu show? (laughs) Why are we talking about all this sword and sorcery nonsense? I play Call of Cthulhu infinitely more than I do sword and sorcery, I'll say that. Do you find anything that relates to Call of Cthulhu in all this, Matt? I'm struggling, so I think that's your answer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, how would it be if you would sort of use this setting but have, like... A Call of Cthulhu sword and sorcery mashup. I think it lends itself to very, very niche aspects of the mythos. I think the Zatheek stories that Clark Ashton Smith did were probably the closest. Mm. If you tie in Conan as well. Or the Hyperborean ones. Yeah, you go one end of the timeline to the other. You go with Zatheek as the last continent, or you take inspiration from say the earlier periods around when like the Serpent People Empire and such, which ties in with Conan. To be pedantic, that was King Cull. It's the same era as far as I can, as far as I care. <laughs> yeah, that, those are about the only areas potentially to tie it in. Maybe some Dreamland stuff if you go kind of Dunzany to a degree. Hmm. But yeah, it's it's very niche, very I'd not say unexplored areas of the mythos, but stuff that you really don't see come up that often. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see like you doing a kind of swords and sorcery thing in the dreamlands absolutely yeah and it was a big influence on me when we were doing uh, the Bolivia chapter in um two-headed serpent i think watching arnie again in, in <laughs> conan uh, and the whole snake cult and the the big snake and everything i think that was uh, just another snake cult definitely where my mind was <laughs> but yeah i think the dreamlands there's loads of stuff you could do there because i mean that is You can just add to the dreamlands and change stuff as you please because, well, it's dreams. Yeah, I think you can bring in any of that stuff you want. If I were doing Sword and Sorcery in Call of Cthulhu, I'd I'd probably either do that or use Call of Cthulhu or a hack of Call of Cthulhu to run something in a setting like Zothique. Because that, to me, I think underlines exactly just how closely these two are meshed. I mean, You seem to think that they're very different genres, Matt, but for me, the difference between them is very much window dressing. I think the best sword and sorcery stories, the best sword and sorcery scenarios are ones that would work just as well in Call of Cthulhu or Pop Cthulhu and vice versa, that it's no accident that these stories were all written by the same people. As we've said, I think the Pop Cthulhu rule set would work better with sword and sorcery just because it lends itself to more well pulp action which is kind of mm. what a lot of sword and sorcery is thank you. Thank you. you're listening to the good friends of jackson elias you can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media presences we have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store if you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time at which we would like to 
tap into unsanctified cosmic forces and use them to channel thanks to you. First of all, thanks to anyone who is listening to the podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us. And thank you to a few people whose names we will now chant. Okay, well, it starts off with a thanks to Joachim Wern. <laughs> you got the pronunciation right this time, then. Well, I, I mean, I I hope I have, Joachim. As always, let's just say if we get anybody's name wrong, apologies, and uh, let us know and we'll try it again. And thanks also to Rick Cameron. And thank you very much to Michael Kremin. And thanks to Brent Coldwell. And thank you to Leland Tankersley. And thank you very much to Gregory Kirkpatrick. And thanks to Jeremy Grogan. And thank you very much to Frank Ramsey. And thank you to Extros. And thanks to Jeff. All right, well, I think that wraps it up on Sword and Sorcery. What have we learned? Well, I've learned something. Do you know what I learned? Mm. It's sword singular. It's not swords and sorcery. I've always <laughs> said swords and sorcery. Okay. And, and looking online, yeah, some people do write swords and sorcery, but I think it is singular. So it's sword and sorcery. There you go. So if you learn nothing else, there's that. And if you did enjoy these episodes, in a few episodes' time, we will be coming back to at least some of the same material where we'll talk about Robert E. Howard, Conan, and one of the, I'd say, better Conan stories. All right, well, that wraps it up today, so it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com I'd sooner eat cow dung. Oh, that could be arranged. <laughs>